We just joined our voices together in several songs, the meaning of which was truly remarkable. Heavenly Sunlight, one of the songs we just sang had a word in it that's going to turn out to be a rather important word at one point in the lesson tonight. You may want to at least recollect or keep in mind that song we just sang. But before that, we, of course, we sang about the greatness of Jesus, our friend. There's not a friend, of course, like, like, like Him indeed. Tonight's lesson, as you can already see on the wall behind me, will surround the topic of the names, note the plural word, the names of God. And at first thought, at least, you might have a bit of wonderment about the nature of, well, isn't God an appropriate and perfect description for the God whom we serve and the God whom we worship? The idea behind the lesson is going to be to look at the varying words that are used in the Word of God in a way to refer to God Himself. And as we shall shortly discover, there isn't just one of these words. There is more than one, and these names will turn out to be very significant indeed. I'd like to begin with a statement, perhaps from literature, that you may well remember. William Shakespeare, of course, in one of his famous plays, asked the question, What is in a name? A rose, of course, by any other name is just as sweet. Well, we aren't going to discuss William Shakespeare. That's not our interest. But the thought of a name, a name is important. The Word of God even signifies, doesn't it, the, the greatness of the name of God. The third of the Ten Commandments expressly was this, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That was on par with committing murder. It was on par with committing adultery. It was on the same level of thou shalt not with other things such as stealing. It was serious business, you see, to take the God's name in vain. May I suggest that that sentiment at least is something that still our world would be far better off if there was a greater appreciation for the name of God. Far too often it is taken lightly, it's used trivially, it is asserted in a way that does not have the reverence that it ought to have. For that reason, on that slide, you'll notice with me that the characteristics of the names of God are things that, in fact, will have a great meaning for us. May I go ahead and say, as we prepare to launch into the lesson proper, that it would be easy to appreciate these various names will identify attributes of God that we as His children should find comforting. And they ought to draw us to Him because His name signifies something about Him. It signifies some attribute of His character and something of His nature. With that said, our first consideration will be this one. Maybe you have heard of, there actually are some songs on occasion that will employ the phrase Adonai. We don't seemingly refer or use those songs here that often, but on occasion at least you might be aware of this reference for the name of God. It is a rather frequent reference in the Word of God. As you can see near the top of that slide, 439 Old Testament appearances of this word. That's a fairly substantial number. Of the appearances of that word, we rather soon appreciate that the emphasis attached to it is to the absolute authority of God. 
those particular passages in which that appears, it seems as if the attribute of God that's being emphasized is an attribute of His authority to command, His authority to demand reverence, His authority to give commands and to expect that humans will follow them. It identifies the characteristic of His absolute authority. Adonai, and you might well appreciate Several verses in which that appears to clearly, given 439 appearances, I selected a very small number. But of that number, in Genesis 15, 2, Abraham called out as he referred and addressed God. He used this word as a recognition, I'm childless. You may remember he and Sarah at that time had no children. And that was about the time when things were put in motion and he and Sarah had an idea, and it turned out to bring about Ishmael. But at least at this point, he made reference to the authority of God in connection to, I'm childless. Should I select Eliezer, my servant, to be the inheritor? And God said, no. Furthermore, in Exodus 5.22, right before the plagues came upon the Egyptians, There Moses addressed the God of heaven and used Adonai in relation to his authority connected to the deliverance of the children of Israel and the nature of what was about to be brought on the the Egyptians. But in terms of that authority, maybe one more passage. In 2 Samuel 7, there you may remember that David had been given a promise. Through your seed, David... The grandeur and greatness of the human family will be blessed. And as David reacted and responded to this, it was in that context he used this word Adonai in reference to God, identifying God's absolute authority to bring, to bring about His plan. I couldn't resist making one more observation about this word Adonai. It is the number of occurrences in the book of Ezekiel. Now, that book of Ezekiel has 48 chapters. But in that book, 222 times the word Adonai is used to refer to the God of heaven. You might recall that the people of Israel at that time were in Babylonian captivity. They had been removed from their homeland. They were in a very dire circumstance. And yet, it was in that context that Ezekiel referred to God and so often made expression of him using Adonai in terms of his absolute authority. That particular word perhaps leads us to the next one. So we have given sometimes this appreciation of Adonai, but the next one's even shorter. In our English language, E-L, two letters, L. And at first consideration... You and I might have a bit of wonderment about this reference, but let's first notice a few comments about it. First, the significance of it. El is a highlighted appreciation of the strength and power of God. You notice it refers to not merely authority, but rather the strength of Him, the capability of Him, the absolute force and power attached to Him, what He is able to accomplish. Furthermore, you might notice many of the passages in which it occurs lead us to quickly appreciate that the force related to God is stronger than any other force to which man has any access. Our God is able. Oh, how able He is. 
With that development, you might notice a few sample passages. Again, just a few of the many that might have been listed. But in Numbers 23:23, even Balaam referred to God this way. He referred to Him as El, as the God who was able to preserve and to carry out that which was His will. But not only a prophet such as Balaam. In Deuteronomy 3.24, Moses used this phraseology. He used this word to address and to identify the God of heaven. As Moses reflected upon the grandeur and greatness of God, and as he surveyed many of the blessings that Israel had enjoyed, it seems very appropriate he used this word to refer to him. The defeat of Sihon and all great and powerful kings, but... One more powerful than they accomplished it. Finally, in Micah 7, 18, far later in the Old Testament, God through the prophet Micah there in reference made, of course, the appreciation of El as an identifier of this wonderful and powerful God. But as I say all of that, I suppose some of the more frequent occurrences of this one actually occur in connection to other words. Let me explain what I mean by that. Think about the word Israel. We usually just say Israel, the children of Israel. Look at the last two letters in that word, if you would. El. Strength or power with God is what that word means. And notice, then the word God is a part, really, of the word Israel. Israel. It would, quite frankly, be perfectly appropriate every time you and I encounter words such as that one to pronounce them that way. Israel, so that we lay an emphasis upon God. But look at another one. We more often call it Bethel as we read the Old Testament, but notice the last two letters. Bethel. The word Beth means house. So every time you encounter Bethel, it means house of God. Bethel. One more. The prophet Elisha, we usually call him Elisha, but the successor of Elijah, and you'll notice one more time, the word God had a part in his name. Don't you find it interesting that his parents chose to name him in such a way, highlighting and using a reference to God in the very choice of His name. We've looked at Adonai, and now we've at least given some quick appreciation to El, but there's more to be said about this one. Look at the very bottom. There are a number of other places or occurrences in which El also occurs. El El Yon. That one we find a few references in the Old Testament, and it literally has significance to the Most High God. You might note the words Most High. There's none higher than He. His will is absolute. A few occurrences in Genesis 14, 18, Abraham referred to Him this way. In light of his victory at the Battle of the Kings earlier in that chapter, he praised God as El Elyon. Interesting, isn't it? The Most High God. But there are more to be noted. Here are a few others. Perhaps some of them are less familiar than others, but some of them probably are at least more familiar to us. Elohim. Note the first two letters. That again is a word that can be readily utilized 
highlighting His power and connection to creation. Isn't that beautiful? When the creation was carried out and it has been sustained as it has, you'll note Elohim, Genesis 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. But notice, God, in particular appreciation of Elohim, is who brought this about. Another particular reference in Ecclesiastes 3.11, as the great writer Solomon poured forth his appreciation, highlighting the greatness of, remember that's the chapter where there's a time for so many different things. And then in verse 11 he points out again, Elohim and the greatness of God in connection to that. Let's move on to the next particular reference, El Olam. Here, note El, in connection to power, is manifested especially in His continuance. His continuance, particularly His everlasting character. Maybe a couple of the references we might note. In Genesis 21-33, here Isaac had just been born, and as a particular reference of praise and adoration was presented, it was El Olam is the word that's used to refer. And isn't that interesting? I believe we're beginning to see that various of the words used are some of them not quite as oft used by us. In Romans 16.26, very last paragraph of the book of Romans, we notice there that a word there is used to refer to God. And again, the everlasting God is highlighted. Maybe two quick references to close that slide. El-Ra. Probably my pronunciation of that one is very lacking. But at the very least, you can notice here His great power is connected to the fact He sees everything. You and I serve and worship the all-seeing God. We cannot hide from Him. In Proverbs 15.3, we notice that this God that we serve and this God that we worship is such that He sees the good and the bad. Maybe it is in that light. We have no reason to try to hide from Him because we know we'll never be successful. Maybe one last thought is El Shaddai. Here His power is highlighted in the connected case of His all-sufficiency. His all-sufficiency. You and I know that for our sufficiency, we have to rely on someone or something else. But with God, that isn't so. He and He alone is all-sufficient. In Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1, here, in connection to the rite of circumcision that God gave His command to Abraham, notice the reference to God would take the form of El Shaddai, His all-sufficient nature. Maybe the final one would be Psalm 90, verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, absolutely sufficient, you are God. The consideration of all of those things only whet our appetite for what other references to God are going to appear. We've looked at El, and we've looked at Adonai, but here's the third one. A bit shorter, Emmanuel. You may already notice the last two letters of this word, L, all over again. Emmanuel. 
But notice the particular significance. This literally means God with us. And as far as the references or the places in which we observe its appearance, it is used to identify Jesus as the Christ. It's used with specific reference and emphasis to that second member of the Godhead. In Isaiah 7, 14, the Old Testament prophecy that He would be born of a virgin, there it is this word that's employed, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Matthew quoted it in Matthew chapter 1, and it is that connection that brings us to appreciate that reference to Jesus is so clear. Some other places in the Bible where the sense of Emmanuel appears in terms of the highlighting the deity of our Master, I might ask you to notice Isaiah 9 verse 6, where that catalog of names is given of Him. Wonderful is He. Specifically there it is said again, He is our everlasting God. Perhaps in that connection we can close that slide again by observing in Matthew chapter 1, the understanding that comes with that word Emmanuel. But what about the fourth name on our list? We to this point have looked at these three. I'm sure there are some you are expecting, and we are inching our way toward them. Jehovah. We frequently, of course, encounter this one, and far more often perhaps than some of these other ones that we have looked at so far, we readily utilize and understand the appearance some of our songs, in fact, frequently ask us to sing about Jehovah. Well, let's give some thought to what Jehovah recognizes. Literally, the name means the self-existent one. The self-existent one. The usage of Jehovah perhaps begins by observing this. With His self-existent character, His basic nature never changes. And often in the Word of God, that sense is in fact highlighted. We might begin in Psalm 102, verse 25 and following, where just as the sky before us is something that we so often reflect upon, there the writer said, the day's coming when that's going to be rolled up like a garment. But you, God, unlike that, will never cease to be. You're self-existent. You continue onward. And the Hebrew writer of the New Testament quoted that passage in Hebrews chapter 1, and it is used to highlight for us the grandeur and the sheer existence of the God of heaven. To that might we add this. In Exodus 6, verses 2 and following, God uses this word to refer to Himself. I might ask you to refer to that one as I read it. Exodus 6, starting in verse number 2. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am Jehovah. Might you note with me, when God reacted and responded to the statement of Moses, He said to Moses, I am Jehovah. Isn't that beautiful? God referred to Himself as this self-existent one. No doubt that meant a great deal to Moses. And on this slide, you'll begin to notice a host of particular references of the Bible wherein the name Jehovah is connected to some other words to identify a city or perhaps a region or maybe even a more broader referenced place. For example, Jehovah Jireh. That word Jehirah, sorry, Jireh adds to it the thought of provision God will provide. 
Not only that, Jehovah Makedishkem. That adds the thought of sanctification to Jehovah. Jehovah is the one that sanctifies. Not only that, Jehovah Nisi, where that word Nisi signifies the word banner. God is our banner. He is the one who leads us into battle. He's the one who is our fortitude and strength. He is our banner. You can see, furthermore, a whole host of other ones that you literally can find in the Old Testament. I didn't list all the verses that go with them, but given a concordance, you can readily find all of them. Jehovah Rapha, the concept of healing. Jehovah Rohai, the concept of He's our shepherd. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies of the host of heaven. I would suggest the significance of that one. Those angels, according to Revelation 5, are numberless. And yet, God is the Lord of the armies of the host of heaven, as extensive as that number may be. Furthermore, Jehovah Shalom, where the word Shalom means peace. Jehovah Shema, where companionship is highlighted. Finally, Jehovah Sidkinu, the thought of righteousness. One by one... As you begin to experience with me, at least the recollection, how often the word Jehovah is used in reference to God in terms of existence, but often connected to these special references as well. Number five, a bit shorter. Three letters, Y-A-H. Perhaps we would say Yah. But as you, can, as you can readily see with me, the reference to this one is to some extent a reminder of some of the others we have seen. After all, look at the one we just now considered, Jehovah. Take basically the last three letters. And remember, the V in Hebrew is often more strongly connected to what here you and I might well write as the Y, but the point might well be taken. There certainly seems to be some degree of connection but this one is listed by itself in some ways that you and I might now notice. Yah, remember, the idea of self-existence went with the previous one. This seems to exemplify that or even extend it. Exodus 15 verse 2 is an example where this one appears. Remember, the children of Israel had just crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptians had just been destroyed or drowned, and now Israel was free. And in that regard and in that great statement of song of praise, they pronounced God as Yah and praised Him in that way. Furthermore, we might add Psalm 68 verse 4, where in the midst of the Psalms, David exclaimed in greatness to God using Yah as the way of reference, the self-existent one. Finally, on that slide, I might point out the name Yah is also combined with other particular letters to make other words, many of which are very familiar to us. Look at some of them. I mentioned a moment ago that that song we just sang right before the lesson, it had in it the word Alleluia. Would I ask you to notice, take the last three letters of that word and look at what precedes it. Allel, with Yah at the end of it. The word literally means praise the Lord. 
And so whenever we sing or use the word hallelujah, we're saying praise to the Lord, praise to the God of heaven. And we're referring to God in a way using Yah. But look at the prophet Elijah's name. We've already looked at El, the first three words, but notice the last part of that word. God is Yah. Again, isn't it interesting that as his parents named him, they named him in a way that highlighted in a double way the understanding of and the grandeur of the God of heaven. Maybe one final example on that slide, the word Joshua, that successor of Moses and the one who led Israel into the land of Canaan. If you actually look at the way the word Joshua literally appeared in Hebrew, it has Yah as a part of it. Specifically, Yah is my salvation. I find it ironic, almost intriguing, that that same word is used in the book of Hebrews, and sometimes as you read the King James translation, it's there referring to Jesus, but Yah is a part of it. We come to near the close of the lesson and look at maybe the one you expected, or at least one we have noted on more than one occasion. Y-H-W-H. You may want to go ahead and be turning to Exodus 3, because we will encamp there for just a little bit as we look at the occurrence of this word and the way in which it appears. Y-H-W-H. The first thing I suppose all of us would say is that it looks in English, there are no vowels in this word. As it appears there, why is not a vowel? Y-H-W-H, how should it be pronounced? The ancient Jews struggled mightily with this. What vowels could you insert and thus yield some particular pronunciation? They, of course, made a certain selection, and we shall note that ourselves in just a moment. But for right now, let's go ahead and notice Exodus 3. This was read in our hearing earlier, but maybe we could take observation of it yet again. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? God, of course, had made determination that He would shortly deliver Israel by way of these miracles, the plagues, as you and I would call them. And yet, as Moses now reacted to God, he said, When I come to the people and I tell them who has sent me, what name should I use? Who should I tell them has commissioned me to come to you, to come to them? Verse number 14, God replies and says, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. He said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. When Moses asked God what name he was to use, when Moses inquired of God the particular personal name that he was to utilize in referring to God, the answer that God gave was this one, Y-H-W-H. Now, as you can see on that slide, at least in our King James translation, 
you will frequently, in fact, far, far often find it translated as the word Lord, where Lord is spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In other words, it's Lord in all capital letters. There has been much, very much, that has been discussed and written and considered relative to these four letters. In fact, sometimes they're given a name. When you see them in this form, Y-H-W-H, as a reference to the name of God, they're called the Tetragrammaton. And so if you have interest in looking into that a bit more, at least you can appreciate Tetra in, in, in Greek means four. The four letters. The four great letters. And so it is that you'll notice with me it occurs a staggering approximately 6,800 times in the Bible, in particular the Old Testament. A bit short of 7,000 times in 39 Old Testament books. It is a very frequently occurring reference then to the God whom we serve and the God whom we trust and the God that we desire to serve acceptably. Y-H-W-H. As you now take a look at that particular word, suppose we insert vowels like this. Put an A between the Y and the first H. Y-A-H. And then put an E between the W and the final H. Y-A-H, W-E-H. And we would form what we typically would read as Yahweh. Yahweh. But it's merely an insertion of vowels such that, of course, it leads to that which you and I can pronounce readily. One would suppose that other vowels might have been chosen but the ancient Greek, I'm sorry, the ancient Hebrews, of course, had a keener sense of the Hebrew language, and I suppose that we'd be fair in trusting their judgment. But at the very least, we could say this: it was their esteemed position to never ever wish to in any way mispronounce, to in any way misapply, and to in any way misjudge the usage of that name. And therefore, quite often, they took great pains to never, ever utilize it in any way that would call it into question. Remember, God had said, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. They considered it one of the highest penalties to take that name in vain. In Genesis 1, verses 1 and following, Romans 1, verse 20, we have at least a few references that call to our appreciation the grandeur of the God him, that, that, that you and I serve and worship. In reflecting upon these names, I'd like to invite at least a moment of conclusion. As we've looked at all of the references to God that we have considered this evening, I hope they have been at least mindful to us about the attributes of God. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is all-powerful. Those are simple facts, and His name should remind us of that. God is not merely a buddy on our level. He is far greater than we. His thoughts are greater than ours. His ways are higher than ours. And didn't God tell Isaiah that in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9? 
it is in that connection we might close this slide by again just quickly observing Adonai, El, Emmanuel, Jehovah, Yah, Yahweh. The Bible has much to say to you and me about referring to God, about addressing Him appropriately and doing so with reverence. For isn't it so that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him? Psalm 89, verse number 7. Tonight, I trust that all of us have been drawn closer to God by at least reflecting upon His name. If there would be anyone in this assembly tonight that would have an interest in making a public response to the Lord's invitation, we want you to know it is His invitation. It is not our elders' invitation specifically, nor is it mine. It is merely our goal to set forth His invitation. Did He not say, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden? He invites one and all, and only He can forgive us. Only He can set us on a pedestal and lead us safely in strength through life. Would you not come to Him if that's your need? If you have been a Christian at one time and have walked away from faithfulness, you do have opportunity to return in love to Him. He isn't the one that left you. You left Him. Don't you want to come back rushing to the side of a self-existent one, the self-sufficient one? Didn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5, Our sufficiency is not of ourselves. May we never forget that truth. And if we could be of help to you tonight in that regard, we invite you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.